Good morning. It's good to be with you guys today. Um, Jonathan and I, we're currently preaching through a series in the life of David, as you know, if you've been with us the past, I don't know, lots of weeks. Uh, but we like to give you guys a break on occasion. And so we're going to do that this week and perhaps next week. Not sure yet about that, but definitely this week and preach on a specific topic. And with it being uh, Labor Day weekend, it seemed appropriate to talk, on the, to talk to you from God's Word on the topic of work. So if you'll turn with me in your Bibles, not to the book of 2 Samuel, but to the book of Ephesians, which we just worked on. But this is Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 to 9. If you're using the Bibles here at the church, it'll be page 979. Ephesians chapter 6. Now, before we start in and read this text, uh, you'll notice immediately, if you just look at the, the heading there, that this text, it, Paul is addressing slaves and masters here. So let me just talk about that for a second before we dive in uh, to help you understand how this text applies to your work. So first, the first thing we want to say about slavery as we approach it in the New Testament is that the, the institution... Uh, as it existed when the New Testament was written, was very different from the modern forms of slavery that you may be more familiar with, and especially with the form of slavery that was practiced in the United States. This means that you need to be careful about importing uh, your, your concept of slavery, your idea of what it looks like into this text, into the New Testament. In fact, some translations, because of this fact, they use the word bondservant here instead of the word slave. That's to clarify that what Paul is talking about was quite different from what people today, when they hear the word slave, might think in their heads. Um, so newer editions of the ESV translation, like the one that I'll be reading, and the ones that are here at the church, they do use this word, bondservant, and, and they describe in the introduction, the translators describe why they made that choice. You can read about that if you want. Now, one commentator I, I read even wrote that the closest analogy we have to the bond service that Paul is addressing here in Ephesians um, is the modern employer employee relationship. And so I will mainly apply this text to that context, the, the context of employees uh, and employers. That's not to say there aren't differences, and that's not to say that bond service as it existed in the time of the New Testament wasn't still unjust and abusive. And so, you know, sometimes people will be unhappy that the, the biblical writers, the New Testament writers, don't explicitly condemn slavery. You know, why doesn't Paul explicitly condemn it here? So, secondly, let me just say that overwhelmingly the Bible is concerned with personal transformation that leads to social transformation rather than social transformation that leads to personal transformation. And, and the reason for that is the Bible's diagnosis of what problem humans have. The problem we have is people's hearts. It, it doesn't matter if the structures, the societies, the institutions are good or bad if people's hearts are infected. And so overwhelmingly, the Bible 
critiques, the Bible targets the individual. That's what Paul is doing here. He is targeting the individual, not uh, the institution. Although, of course, what he has to say about the individuals will lead to change in the institution. And, and this is what makes the Bible's critique so timeless, so comprehensive. Where there is true heart change, social change ought to always follow, no matter the historical context, no matter what's going on, as sure as a, a healthy plant will produce good fruit. And so as we read this text, you want to be asking yourself, how do God's words here urge personal change in my life, in my heart, and, and then how does that flow out to those around me? All right, so with those words of introduction, Ephesians 6, verses 5 to 9. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he was both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Let's pray. Dear Lord, Father, we pray for wisdom, for direction from these words that you have. God, help us to understand the truth intended by the Holy Spirit as these words were written down and help us to see how it uh, confronts our own hearts, the sin of our own hearts, the, the uh, blindness of our own hearts, and shows us, Lord, a light, the way forward for us, and especially as we think about our work. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Do you have work in your life? And not just the kind of work that you get paid to do, although certainly that counts as work, but many more things count as work too, right? Do you labor in your life? Well, here's the light that this text shines on you, on your life. Your work is an opportunity to serve Jesus. Your labor is an opportunity to worship Jesus. Your work is a chance to commune with your true master. If you are a Christian, you are to work for Jesus. That's the main point of this text. You work for Jesus. Maybe you thought that your pastor and your missionaries were the ones who truly work for God. Throughout the ages, many people have thought that way. But it's not what Paul teaches here in Ephesians. Every Christian who labors to subdue or to fill the earth does so as an employee of the Lord. This point is made several times in the text. It's really the most obvious thing we see. If we look at this text, the most obvious thing we see is that we work for Christ. And so verse 5, uh, you see there verse 5, obey and then with a fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, right? And then verse 6, obey not this way, but as bondservants of Christ. And then verse 7, rendering service 
as to the Lord. And then on down to verse 9, the masters do the same to them. Why? The one who is in heaven is both their master and yours. It doesn't matter if you're the bondservant or you're the master. You're the employee or the employer. Ultimately, you both work for Christ. And maybe you've heard the story about the composer and the musician, Johann Sebastian Bach, how he would uh, sign all his music with two pairs of initials. The first pair was, of course, J-S-B for his name. The second pair, S-D-G, standing for Soli Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. You see, he understood the point of this text, that all work should be done for God. And, and you know, Bach, he would do this with all of his music, not just the music he wrote for the church, uh, but also the music he wrote to be played for the king or for a competition, or even, you know, the music he wrote to be enjoyed by his family at home. He did this because he did not work ultimately for his master, the king, or for his family, or for the church. He worked for God. Now, what does this idea that we work for Christ, that we see here in this text, what does this do for us? If we practice this in our lives, we say, okay, how do we live this way? What does that look like? What does it mean? I can think of at least three things, and these will be my three points this morning. So first, working for Christ makes all submission to legitimate authority sacred. And just to clarify what I mean when I say sacred, I mean it's a way to serve, to worship, and to commune with Jesus. Okay, so my first point— all submission to legitimate authorities in our lives is sacred. It's a means by which we are able to serve, worship, and commune with Jesus. Because Christian submission is to be done as to the Lord. In other words, you submit to your employer as an act of submission to Jesus. You may not like your boss so much, so don't submit to him for his sake. Submit for the sake of Christ. Don't write, done sloppily and angrily for my mean company that pays me little and never gives me time off on your work. Instead, write SDG for the glory of God alone. And we can spin this out into all the different places we are called to submit in our lives. Romans 13, 1-2 tells us that all those in positions of authority have been placed there by God. And so, children, you can submit to your parents as an act of submission to Jesus. Uh, wives can submit to their husbands as an act of submission to Jesus. Church members can submit to their elders as an act of submission to Jesus. Citizens can submit to their governments as an act of submission to Jesus. Now look, this concept can and has been abused by people in this sinful world, and we can't talk through all the different possible situations where that could occur. But let me just say that if someone in authority over you commands you to sin, you do not need to, to submit to that command. If they use their position to oppress you, that is not 
a legitimate use of authority. And you may need to get out of that situation or seek help from those who can help you get out of that situation. But no matter what happens, don't let the sinfulness of other people keep you from the potential freedom of this truth. You don't want to work for them? You don't want to submit to them? Well, then work for Jesus. Submit to Jesus. Your submission to that unkind boss or those unfair parents or that unloving husband or those stubborn elders or that mindless government, these can all be opportunities to worship Jesus and name him as Lord, right in the midst of difficulty. The world would say, you know, you should be bitter, you should be angry in your situation, but that's not how it has to be. As for you, you can serve the Lord. Your submission, when it is done for Christ, is sacred. A second thing working for Christ does is it makes all work potentially sacred. So that's my second point. It makes all work potentially sacred. I say potentially because if you're doing your work for selfish reasons, it's not sacred. But what makes work sacred is whether it is done as to the Lord, as Paul commands. This is important. It's not the type of work that makes it secular or sacred. It's the heart orientation that makes work secular or sacred. Notice in our text, Paul doesn't specify what kind of work can be done to the Lord. And bond servants in the Greco-Roman world did every kind of work. They made up up to a third of the population. You could find them at every social class doing every kind of work. What matters to Paul is who they do their work for. In Colossians 3.23, which is a very similar text to this one, Paul says, whatever you do, do it for the Lord. So your daily routine of caring for your children or cleaning your home or mowing your lawn can be sacred if it is done for Jesus. It is a way to serve, worship, and commune with Jesus. Your day-in, day-out labor for your company or your service to your employees or your, your uh Volunteer service to the needy, that can be sacred if you do it for your true master, Jesus. It might help you to see this if we reflect on verse 8. Look at verse 8 there. Paul says, Whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. What he's saying here is, if you do what is good, you can expect a divine reward from the Lord. And what is this good that we need to do? Is it a specific type of work? No, right? Verse 7, rendering service with a goodwill as to the Lord. What makes work good here? Any service that is done with a goodwill as to the Lord. Maybe you 
dig ditches all day. Maybe you clean diapers all day long. If you do that with a good will, that means a good attitude, as to the Lord, God views it as worthy of a divine reward. It is who you do your work for, not what you do, that God rewards. That's why, perhaps you can see, in God's kingdom, sometimes the person who looks the least is actually the greatest in the kingdom. And those people who look like maybe they're the greatest in the kingdom might actually be the least in the kingdom. I hope this changes the way you look at labor. This is a concept you can take with you into your daily routine. Now, let me clarify that there is still a priority to the type of labor you pursue. The priority is the kingdom of God. Um, Ed Clowney has some helpful thoughts on this. He writes, Every calling that serves men's needs can be Christ's calling. But then he offers this clarification. There are jobs that a Christian ought not to take because they serve purposes opposed to the kingdom. There are jobs that he ought not to keep when positions affording greater kingdom service are open to him. And there are jobs that he ought to seek where his skills can render particular service to the kingdom. And so we don't always have a choice about what work we do, right? These bond servants probably didn't have any kind of choice about what they were going to do each day. But when we do, there is a priority that comes into play. We want to advance the kingdom of God, which means subduing the world, it means filling the world, and it means transforming it by means of the proclamation of Christ. Thirdly, and finally, working for Christ means your behavior is to be sacred. Your behavior is to be sacred. How you work should look different. It should look set apart, sacred. Paul describes what this should look like in a bunch of different ways throughout this text. First, in verse 5, he says, We are to obey those in charge of us with fear and trembling. This is a phrase that's used throughout the Bible. It doesn't actually mean typically be terrified of them, but rather it means to treat them with respect, with deference uh, that they deserve as the people who are in charge. Uh, Paul goes on, with a sincere heart, he says. In other words, don't just show the authorities in your life respect outwardly. It has to be sincere and genuine. No hidden agendas, no improper motivations, no guile. How can you obey that way if the person that is in authority over you is not respectable? Only if you are ultimately seeking to serve Christ. Paul goes on to explain this way of working with a negative comparison, not by way of eye service as people pleasers. Eye service is work done only because someone is watching you. Uh, maybe you've seen a parent um, teaching a young child to clean up their toys, and it has to be painfully micromanaged, 
right, okay, George, now let's come pick up this toy right at my foot. No, no, nope, the car right here, right, yep, okay, good, you've got it. Okay, now put it in the bin over there. No, 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 not that direction. This way, yep, okay, walk over in the bin right there. Oh, good, oh, good job. All right, let's go get the next toy, right? That's what it looks like. I'm sure you've seen this before. It is not very efficient. Maybe those of you who are employers have had workers like this, where you kind of had to walk through everything with them each time, right? You got to check all their work. You have to redo half of it. There's a massive difference, right, between that person and the employee that you can send to a job. You know they're going to do their best. You know they're going to work hard the whole time, even if you don't have a chance to go check on them. So that's service. We want to avoid that. The second phrase, people pleaser, is a similar concept. It's one we use more often. Uh, a people pleaser, right? Someone who only works in order to make the people watching like them or be happy about what they're doing. We don't want to be people pleasers. We want to be Christ pleasers. And of course, Christ sees all of our work if you were to visit, maybe, maybe some of you have had this experience, you visit a, like a medieval cathedral, if you've traveled abroad, and you took a pair of binoculars with you, and you look up towards the ceiling, you'll find there's all this beautiful sculptures, there's, you know, woodwork in, 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 in hidden places way up, far up, where no one would possibly see it especially in the days before binoculars. No one wouldn't even know it's there, right? Why, why did the, the craftsmen and the architects care about that stuff? It has no impact on the worshipers far below. Well, they care because they're working for God, right? People might not see those details, but God would. Talking about this could be a guilt thing for you on the one hand, but it could also be an opportunity, an opportunity to transform the value, the meaning of every aspect of your work, whatever it is, right? It's not the type, it's who you do it for. Much of what we do in our work goes unseen by people, and if we're only concerned for what people think, we could easily coast along with minimal effort. I was challenged by this idea myself this week as I sat in my office. As long as I have a sermon to preach on Sunday, is anybody really going to ask me how I spent all my time during the week and whether I did it to the best of my ability? But I am a bondservant of Christ, and if so, then the, the way I do my work matters because he knows my heart. And because the way I do my work is a means to serving, to worshiping, and to communing with Jesus. And I don't want to miss out on that. Notice, finally, at the end of verse 6, this work is to be done from the heart. And then in verse 7, it's to be done with a good will, right? Paul's emphasis with those phrases is on the spirit in which our work is done. Not the actual product. Of course, the way we do something will have an impact on the product. But it's not the skill or the talents that matters to God. He can give you whatever skill he wants you to have. 
What he wants is faithful workers who place their hearts in his hands. Jesus doesn't just want the little bit of money you give to the church, the little bit of volunteer hours you scrape together for the church. He wants all of you. He wants all your labor to be for him and all your rest to be in him. Now, moving into verse 9, I haven't differentiated much between the master and the bondservants, those in authority, those under authority, because uh, Paul tells the masters uh, to act the same way to their servants. So what he says in verses 5 to 8 applies to the masters as well, though, of course, its application would look a bit different. Uh, They're still the ones in charge. He's not totally uh, turning things upside down. They're still the ones who need to be obeyed. But Paul does say something specific to those in authority, something extra to those in authority. He wants them to stop their threatening. You see that in verse 9? This is an important reminder to those with any authority, whether parents or um, employers or husbands or older siblings or teachers, etc., right? (laughs) Everyone, nearly everyone here surely has an area of authority somewhere. And, And if you do, please examine yourself carefully. God's Word is continually confronting us and comforting us. So don't squirm away from the confrontation. The path to gospel hope is confrontation, humility, repentance, and dependence on Jesus. Embrace that road. What what can you lose? Your ego, your pride? Good riddance, right? Brothers and sisters, humility is the path of our Savior, and humility is the path of joy and contentment. So ask yourself, how do I use my authority? How do I use it? Do I threaten? Intimidate? Manipulate? We pray, save me from myself, O Lord, for you alone have access and power over my heart. So, Working for Christ means your submission to authority is sacred, your work is sacred, and your behavior is sacred. All ways to serve, to worship, and to commune with Jesus. But as we move to celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning, I want to remind you that working for Christ begins when you accept Christ's work for you. Paul does not make these massive claims on the lives of bondservants and masters in the city of Ephesus without a context. Why are they to walk in love toward one another? Anybody memorize Ephesians 5, 2 recently? And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Christ walked in love toward us before he ever asked us to walk in love toward one another. Christ 
offered himself up before he ever asked you to learn to sacrifice. And it's not simply that Jesus is a powerful example of love for us that we celebrate here in the Lord's Supper, although that is true. We do celebrate that. It's, it's more than that. For with his body and his blood, he provides the necessary strength that we need, the strength to transform us into those who are able to walk in love. And so if, work, if, if working for Christ, right, as we've seen it described here by Paul in Ephesians, seems difficult to you, seems hard, and it should, or else I, I didn't explain this passage well enough to you. It should seem hard to you. If it is, ask Christ for help. You are in the right place. That's the only way you will ever grow. We are able to work for Christ when we claim his work for us. And so as we turn to the Lord's Supper, let this be a time of rest. Rest yourself in Jesus and his work for you. Anticipate his strength. Ask for it in prayer and receive it in this meal. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we thank you for your great goodness to us in giving us work to do. And not just work that provides for us and others and fulfills us in this world, but work through which we can serve you, no matter the task. Work through which we are able to worship you and through which we commune with our Savior. Bind us to him, we pray. May we, Lord, claim our identity as his bind servants. Lord, may we claim us as our master and our living Lord who rose victorious over sin and death. And may he lead us into this life and beyond. In Christ's name we pray.